from Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. It's Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And they said, and he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, now the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved, for joy they were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and they said to him, Thus and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifted up, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. 
If you'd pray with me, Lord, as we finish this, this book and as we wrap up all the things that you began to do and teach, I pray that you would increase our faith, that you give us hope, that you would fill us with joy, Lord, that you would give us peace, peace in the things that we do because of the things that you've done, because of the things that you will do. We ask in your name, amen. When we began preaching through Luke, we started by looking at the first four verses of the gospel, and I said there that Luke's overall purpose was that his readers might confidently follow Jesus, or might confidently follow the long-awaited Savior, the one that the Old Testament prophets, all the way back to Moses, had talked about. And I hope that these last few months, as we've gone through Luke, that it's bolstered your confidence. It's what I desired to have happen, just as Luke desired for his reader, Theophilus, I desired for your confidence in Christ to be increased. And while our confidence level, while my personal confidence level, your personal confidence level, doesn't make the reality of Jesus's life and what he's done any more, any less true, it does in some ways change our experience of it in our everyday life, right? It does change how we respond how we maybe feel in any given moment. In that way, confidence, confidence level at, at the critical moment that action is to take place matters, does it not? It matters in any arena. But I want to tell you I want to tell you a sad little story about my childhood, okay? And some of you might have heard this story before, I'm not sure. If you have, then just, you know, bear with me, but for those of you who haven't, <clears throat> enjoy. When I was in the second grade, everyone in the school participated in a class spelling bee. So everyone in the school was required to do a spelling bee in their classroom, right? And this was no problem. I was in that class every day. My friends were in that class. My teacher was the nicest teacher you've ever had, and I was a decent speller. And lo and behold, uh, as things shook out, I got second place in my class. Pretty good, you know? Awesome, second grade Cody. <clears throat> now, now, what I didn't realize, and, and if I had realized this, maybe I would have thrown the thing, I'm not sure, but what I didn't realize at the time was that the top two spellers in every class were required to participate in the all-school spelling bee. And so later, I, don't know if it was, I can't remember, you know, as a second grader, I can't remember if it was the next day or if it was the next week or what, but later, I had the opportunity to participate in the all-school spelling bee. 
And I can remember, you know, you, 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 you excited, oh, okay, whoa, 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 all right, no, this is, you know, I did good. You know, I'm sure my mom was, co- you know, hey, you did great in your class spelling. You're going to do great, you know, as moms do. Praise God for moms. But, you know, when the day came, everyone was in the gym and all the contestants were on the stage. And I can remember, I remember, you know, in my like eight-year-old memory, uh, so this may be amplified a little bit, but this is, you know, how I remember it, Okay. The gym seemed like it was packed, the side bleachers filled, chairs on the gym floor, people everywhere. I don't know if parents were there or what, but it seemed like there were tons of people and the, the, the lights in the gym were low and the lights for the stage, you know, it was like a gym with the stage on the end and the lights for the stage were just, just glaringly bright, right? You couldn't see anything, but just the lights were in your face. And suddenly I began to get really, really nervous. My confidence was, you know, had been up here, you know, in my classroom, you know, it's just like brr, brr, crash and burn, right? Now, I'm not sure how a second grader is supposed to compete with like fourth and fifth grade spellers, right? There seems like that's a big difference. But here we were. I feel like I was set up to fail to this day, whatever. I can't remember a whole lot, but I can remember I got up to this microphone and they started out, you know, they started out with easy words. And I, man, I remember this so clearly. My word was who? Who? And I can remember thinking, this is an easy word. I can remember thinking that. But my brain was absolutely locked up. And in my head, I kept thinking H-O-W, but I knew that wasn't who. I knew that wasn't right, but all I could think was H-O-W, H-O-W. That's not right, Cody. How do you spell who? This is an easy word. You should get this. This should be easy. H-O-W. No, that's not right, Cody. And I just froze in the lights. The weight of those three little letters pressing down on my shoulders, crushing little second grade me to the floor until finally I burst out in tears and ran off the stage. (laughs) As anyone else would do in that situation, right? You know, there's a thousand scenarios I could have spelled that word in. But in that one, in in real life, in what actually happened, that day, my legs buckled under the weight and my brain melted under the lights. There's a hundred ways in which you can confidently follow Jesus. But my guess is that there are some areas, that there are some relationships that there's some situations where you find it difficult to obey, where it feels like the lights are shining bright in your face, and when the critical moment happens, you just, you melt, and you fail again. You're disobedient again, and you don't step up to the plate again. If it depends on us, 
then I'd be hard-pressed to give you any advice. But it doesn't. It doesn't depend ultimately on me and you. As we've seen, Jesus has done something remarkable. We don't have to be sad and paralyzed. We can confidently follow Jesus. So as Luke wraps up this, his gospel, I want to give you two reasons. Two reasons why we can confidently follow Jesus from these two scenes at the very end of Luke 24. These two different scenes in which Jesus, at the critical moment, reveals himself to his disciples. I want you to see how when we see Jesus for who he really is, we don't have to fear, but we can have confidence in him. First reason we see in verses 13 through 32, we can confidently follow Jesus because we see that what has happened was planned. We see that what happened was planned. What causes these disciples to be to look sad and stand still? What causes sad, paralyzed Christians who fail to follow Jesus? What causes you? In those moments, rather than stepping in encourage and boldness to follow Christ into whatever that thing is that he's calling you to do? What causes you instead to stand paralyzed and sad? These disciples, they leave Jerusalem probably from the company of the other disciples that they're going to rejoin later in the story. And they're walking to Emmaus, And they're mystified about Jesus and about this empty tomb. And they're discussing it as they walk. These disciples have seen Jesus do countless miracles. Remember, the things that Jesus has done throughout his life are almost indescribable. They marveled all through the book of Luke. It talks about how they marveled at what he did and and here... They're mystified about what has happened to him. And they're discussing it. And, and Jesus joins them, and I love this. He, he kind of just joins up with them. You can imagine two guys walking along a dusty road, and another guy is just walking along, and they're kind of like, you know, they're, they're kind of in their conversation. They hardly even recognize that this guy comes up as well. And they're having this very lively conversation, and this, this mysterious man says, Man, you guys seem really into, into, into whatever you're talking about. What are you talking about? I want you to notice here that Jesus must draw near to them. Though they are his followers, though they are to follow him, it is Jesus who must draw near to them. And perhaps, perhaps here I'm over-spiritualizing this little detail, but, but I think the reality that when Jesus inquires about what has happened, the fact that they are sad and they stand still, that there's this awkward moment. They're walking and he asks and they stop. They don't say anything for a moment. They're just sad. They don't know what to say. 
Listen, how often is this where Jesus finds us? How often is it? We say we believe that God is sovereign, but when the unexpected happens, when something troubling happens, it's like all competence is just sucked out of our soul, right? We're troubled, we're unsure what to do next. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, in that moment, we forget all of the wonderful, ridiculous, crazy, marvelous things that God has done in our life, right? Just as these disciples had seen Jesus do countless miracles, heal probably thousands of people, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, demons coming out, sick being healed. They'd seen all of these things, and yet this event has sucked all confidence out of their soul. How many times does Jesus find us in this place where we could reflect on our life and we could think about all the things that Christ has done and the ways that he's changed us, the ways that he's saved us, and the, and the countless blessings that he's brought into our life, and yet this one event just sucks all confidence out of us. We're paralyzed and sad don't even know what to do next. We spend more time lamenting that to one another than we spend actually going to God himself. And yet Jesus in those moments, draws near, near to us, even though we're unable to see him clearly. What causes sad, paralyzed Christians? Well, I think we could say, perhaps, that it's a lack of hope. These disciples, they affirm so much of who Christ really was, and we see that in, in verses 19 through 20. You can read this, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who's a prophet, mighty indeed before, before God and all the people, and, and all these things happened. He was condemned to death and he was crucified. But we, we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Christ has done so many things in my life. He's brought so many blessings in my life. God has done so much for me, but I had hoped that. But it doesn't seem like it's going to work out. And I'm sad and I'm paralyzed. And it leaves us puzzled rather than purposeful. How often is that true of us? We feel confident about what God would have us to do, and then something goes wrong unexpectedly, at least how we see it. We see that it's gone wrong unexpectedly. In our perspective, it's gone wrong unexpectedly. And rather than trusting Jesus' words and continuing to move forward, realizing all of the wonderful, miraculous blessings that He's done in our life before Instead, we stand around talking about how we can't believe that happened. Isn't that so bad? We had hoped. 
What cures this malady when it happens? And it happens to all of us. It's happened to you, I'm sure. It happens to me. What cures this malady? Well, I want to offer up that the cure for this malady is the Word of God. It's the Word of Christ. And I think we see four elements here as the, they get to the place where they're going. And I love this. Jesus pretends that he's going to walk on, you know, like as if he doesn't know what's going to happen, right? He's like, okay, well, I'm going to keep on, you know, oh, what? Oh, you want me to come stay? Oh, well, all right, I guess, you know, fine. You pulled my, you twisted my arm. I'll, I guess I'll, I'll come. And, and we see four elements here. As Jesus is walking along the road with them, and it, and it says that he begins to explain to them. What, is it, what does it say? It says he begins to explain to them. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Four elements that we see in these interactions with Christ. First, the word of Christ must be heard in faith. Verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. They knew they'd heard what Christ said. How many times have we read in the book of Luke where Jesus says directly to his disciples, hey guys, newsflash, I'm going to have to die. I'm dead for three days. I'm going to come back from the grave. And they don't get it. And it's not that they don't get it because he didn't say it clearly, right? It's not like Jesus was speaking in a different language. They liked faith. Faith assures us, Hebrews 11 tells us, of what we hope for. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to do it. Faith is what assures us of that hope, not what we see in the moment. Not that in that moment, it, they don't understand why Jesus died and why his body's not in the grave. It's faith in the word of Christ that assures us of what we hope for. Second, it must be centered on the gospel. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It isn't enough to merely have faith in anything. It's not as if me just having faith somehow gives me confidence. No, in fact, if your faith is just in anything, you shouldn't have any confidence at all. Because if, if all that matters is your faith is in anything, then, then what you're really saying is, my faith is in me. And I don't know, last time I checked, when I have my faith in me, I, I don't really have a reason to have confidence. It's not the sincerity of our faith, but the surety of the truth believed in that matters. And so it must be centered on what Christ has done. And listen, we, we rightly focus on Christ's death and resurrection, but, but let us not forget that he says these, this last phrase, and enter into his glory. Part of the gospel 
is that Christ is on the throne. That he has entered into his glory. Third element here is that it must be understood in the light of the Old Testament. Faith is not blind faith. We're not called to blind faith. It's not unreasonable. It's not check your your reason, check your brain at the door, and just have faith instead. No, we have a God who called his shot and then did it. He he looked Satan in the face and he said, look, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And you can't stop me. And then he went ahead and did it. Still, even still, they don't quite recognize Jesus yet. There's one more element. Like I said, Jesus acts like he's going to go on, but they invite him to come in and eat. And then there's this moment where Jesus gives thanks and he breaks bread. And it's interesting, some, some have thought that maybe we have the, like the, the first practice of communion here, but I'm, I'm not sure that all the pieces are there for that. But it, but it does remind us of the, the feeding miracles that Christ has done in the book of Luke, it does remind us of the scene at the Last Supper. It is that table fellowship that we've seen time and time again with Jesus, along with those who are his followers. And it's interesting that this stranger, this guy that just came up along the road, that they just met a couple of hours ago, perhaps, is now taking the place of the host in this meal. The host would be the one who would break the bread and and give thanks, and yet Jesus takes that position. You can't help but do it, right? That is his position. And he takes the bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it. And it says that in that moment, in that moment when Jesus takes the place of providing for his disciples as he provided for the 5,000 and the 4,000, as he provided for his followers in the upper room, in that moment, their eyes are opened. Listen, the word of Christ must be heard in faith. It must be centered on the gospel. It must be understood in the light of the Old Testament, but it also must be provided by God himself. Only God opens our eyes. We lean often on the fellowship of believers in all sorts of times when things go awry. But there's a reason that the church is also called the body of Christ. It reminds us of the one who truly provides. And yes, he often provides through his people, but he is the one providing. And I, and I wonder in those moments <clears throat> when we're sad and we're paralyzed, we lack confidence. Do we take the time to give thanks to Him? Even then, for what He's provided. Do we take the time to come together as a people and give thanks for what He's done for us? Do we take the time to come together and pray to seek Him? The results are this. One, their hearts burn on fire. They're on fire. And second, their eyes are opened. And how opposite is that from the fear that we often have that results in looking sad and standing still? And so I want to ask you again, what fear is keeping you from obedience? What fear is keeping you from moving forward? What fear 
is keeping you paralyzed in your faith, paralyzed in your life, paralyzed in your walk with Christ? Is it fear of getting something wrong? Is it fear of failure? Is it fear of others' opinions or embarrassment? What fear fear is it? The fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus Christ is the foundation of our hope. But for some reason, it turns out knowing that you killed your second grade spelling bee doesn't always help you when the lights are shining on your face. And knowing you're saved by Christ's finished work is foundational, and yet it seems Luke wanted Theophilus to not only stand confidently, but also to move forward confidently. And for that, there's, I think, one more step that's needed, one more dot that we need to connect. We not only need to see that what happened was planned, but we also... We also need to confidently see that what is planned will happen. We see this in verses 33 through 53. Jesus had disappeared, and the uh, disciples who had just walked the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus grabbed their stuff and immediately walked back to Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever walked seven miles in a day before, or 14 miles for that matter. Um, It's a ways to walk. And Jesus, they get there and they tell him what happened, and then, and then Jesus appears to them in the room, right? Peace to you, he says, like as if he doesn't realize that they're going to be totally startled, startled by a person appearing in the room with, with them. I just, there's just so many things in this chapter that I think are hilarious that Jesus does. And still it says that troubles and doubts plague them. Even though all these things have happened, troubles and doubts still plague them. There's something else that they need. They need to see what will happen. They need to understand not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but what that resurrection is going to bring, what it means, what the results will be. And Jesus shows them his wounds. He shows them that he really did rise from the dead, and he and even when that is not, doesn't seem to be quite working, he goes, hey, give me some food. And he eats. He's like, look, I'm not a ghost. I am bodily here, risen from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of what will come, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. The first fruits are only the start of the harvest. The first fruits tell the farmer that the harvest is coming imminently, that it's upon us. These are the greatest first fruits that history has ever seen. The expectation is that a greater harvest is about to come. It's harvest season. The fulfillment of the Old Testament is the foundation for our hope, but more is written that is to be fulfilled, that is being fulfilled. It's interesting, the work of Jesus in His first coming doesn't end with His ascension. Luke, in Acts 1, if you don't know, Luke wrote the book of Luke, right? And then he wrote the book of Acts as a second volume to it. And at the beginning of Acts 1, he says this, he says, 
that, that what Jesus did in the book of Luke is only what he began to do and teach. The Acts part two, the, the sequel, isn't what the church is doing necessarily, but it's what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the church. Luke is the first fruits. The harvest turned to Acts to find out about that. So he considers the work of the Spirit through the church to be the continuation of Jesus' own ministry. And Jesus, in his final recorded words here in Luke, tells us exactly that. He he explains to them what's happened, and then he says this. he, He says that it's written that the Christ should suffer and rise, but he doesn't stop there. Jesus declares what the plan is. He calls his shot again. We can know it will happen as surely as Jesus' death and resurrection happened. And so he gives us this four, what I'm calling this four promise plan. Right here in verses 47 to 49. And I want to use the, you know, those, those categories to show us Jesus' promises, the promises that Jesus gives us, how they can give us confidence, why it matters. All right, so first, first promise is this, that the repentant will be forgiven. Right, he says there that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. That means that, that if he's ca- telling them to, to proclaim it, that he is going to do it, Right? Acts 2, 38 through 39, this is what it says. It says, and Peter said to them, there at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and he turns to the crowds, these people who had cried, crucify him, crucify him, not many days before. And he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the promise. If you repent, you will be forgiven. Listen, if you repent, you will be forgiven. You want to be forgiven? The Bible is super clear. Repent. Repent and believe in Christ. Believe in what he's done. And you will be forgiven. No, no ifs, ands, or buts. Like it, You will be. What a wonderful promise. And if you sin again, we don't need to doubt if God still loves us. We all need to repent and believe. Man, if anything ought to put steel in our Christian spine to stand against what, what, what could be called the false gospel of non-repentance, right? We see this so prevalent, this, uh, what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It's so prevalent in our world today and, and in the Christian world and the church. That somehow there is a way that Jesus forgives us, but, but we don't need to repent. That we can love Jesus, but we don't have to obey Jesus. That Jesus loves us, but that love doesn't necessitate that he transforms us. Why would we even want that? Justification without sanctification doesn't exist. It's not salvation. Sin leads to death. I don't want death. 
want life. The repentant will be forgiven. Second, says that it will be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Friends, the nations will hear the gospel. The nations will hear the gospel. That's not like, maybe, hopefully, I hope the nations will hear the gospel. No, Jesus said, the nations will hear the gospel, period. I will do it. And Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's not just a commission, it's a promise. There may be a whole lot of things that might be beneficial for us to trumpet in the public square, to trumpet to the, the, the nations, to all the world, and maybe people will listen and maybe people won't, and maybe it'll be helpful and maybe it won't, but the gospel will be heard. So let us plant our feet on that above all and before all else, not merely because Jesus said to do it, but because Jesus promised that's the overall game plan and it will work. It will work. Third promise, the church will bear witness. You are witnesses of these things. Well, you're going to proclaim His name to all the nations. Who's going to do that? You are witnesses of these things. The church will bear witness. And some object, well, the church, no, that's not going to work. The church has too many issues. That's, that's not going to work. Well, I, I, I got two responses to that. First, uh, did you think that someone would rise from the dead? Right? Did they think that someone was going to rise from the dead? You think that, oh, that's not going to work. And yet God continues to say, yeah, that's exactly how I'm going to do it then. And second, uh, look around. Jesus' plan is working. Like, look, look around the world. And I get it. There's lots of things that we could lament around the world that are happening. There's lots of things that we could look at and we could say, oh, I don't get this. I, that's puzzling. Uh, that, I don't know what to do about that. That's terrible. I get it. But look around the world. It is working. The nations are coming to know the Lord. 2,000 years later, we're standing all the way over here in Bonner Springs, Kansas, way, way away from where it began in Jerusalem, and we are speaking of Jesus. It's working. What, what reason do we have to not believe that He will not keep His promise? What reason do we proclaim, have, to not grab hold of that promise and bear witness to Christ right here in Bonner Springs and not believe that He will do it. That people will come to know Him. That they'll repent and their sins will be forgiven. That their life will be transformed. That families will be transformed. That our city will be transformed. What reason do we have to believe that He won't keep His promise? What reason do we have to not bear witness to our neighbor or our coworker? Finally, the Spirit will give us power. It says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. You'll be clothed with power from on high. 
There was a promise that the Holy Spirit would come. A promise that was granted to all of God's people in Acts 2, as we read earlier. Friends, we're not alone in this endeavor. Just as Jesus drew near to these disciples as they walked on the road to Emmaus, the Spirit of Christ has drawn near to you who believe in Him. And He is near all the time. Even in those moments when you are sad and paralyzed, He is near. We are not sent off far away with no help. Do you find yourself paralyzed and sad? Maybe not in all of your life, maybe in some area of your life, maybe in some area of your faith, maybe in some relationship, maybe in some moment, some particular. Maybe some hard things have happened, things you don't understand right now, and you can't understand how it's going to work out and what it's going to turn into Maybe you believe in Jesus, but your life lacks joy and contentment that that seems like others have, seems like you ought to have. You want to follow Jesus, but you're paralyzed in what to do, what decision to make, stepping out in that decision, even though you're pretty sure it's right. I don't know what you fear. I don't know how the lights in the moment fear of maybe public failure like me standing up there in the spelling bee embarrassment listen there are no guarantees that we're going to get it all right I'm not standing up here saying that Hey, just just do something and it's going to work out perfect. I'm not not saying that. I don't know what kinds of things will happen between now and then or in the next day or month or year. But as far as it pertains to following Jesus, I can tell you this. Jesus fulfilled God's plan and is fulfilling it through us. He's doing it through us. And I don't know what of that we will see, what of that we won't see, how he'll do it, how it'll work out. I don't know, but I know it will. I know it will. So if you are in a place where your heart and your mind is stuck on the how, I want you to turn it to the who instead. Remember the who. Let's pray.